The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to From the Pulpit on the Restoration Radio Network. This show will air weekly on Thursday nights and will be a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the modernist heresy, which permeates the Church and the world at every level. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration Press and True Restoration Media, with streaming videos and membership subscriptions available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating cost of this program are underwritten by True Restoration Press, we are truly dependent upon listener donations for the continued success of these broadcasts. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on the iTunes Store and are syndicated on TuneIn and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration at truerestoration.blogspot.com on our Facebook page, and our recently added daily news feed, which is linked on the blog homepage. On tonight's broadcast, we will begin a series of sermons on Vatican II, presented by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Catholic Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. This series will air over the next five weeks and will take us right to the root of the problem, which without question has caused the near-complete destruction of everything once recognizable as the Roman Catholic Church her institution, her liturgy, her doctrine, and her disciplines. The Second Vatican Council has done it. Despite a trend in certain traditional Catholic circles to view Vatican II in the quote-unquote light of tradition, or more popularly, in the spirit of the quote-unquote hermeneutic of continuity, Bishop Sanborn will show us that for a Catholic, that is impossible to do. We will air two sermons per week in back-to-back format so that our listeners may digest and ponder the material given each week. Let us now join Bishop Sanborn as he explains whether or not the changes of Vatican II were accidental or whether they were substantial and what exactly is the fundamental error of Vatican II. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today I would like to begin a series of sermons Concerning the changes of Vatican II, very often all of these things are spoken about in a sermon that lasts maybe 20 or 25 minutes, but the subject is really so vast and has so many facets to it that it is something that I would like to do over a long period of time. It is not to say that the series will never be interrupted for things of a more spiritual nature, but uh, this is something that over a number of months or even a year should be done. It is important so that the faithful understand deeply and completely why they are here, why we are doing what we are doing, and what the justification is for what we are doing, and why the other is to be avoided. Now, the central question with regard to the changes of Vatican II the point of departure, if you want, is whether the changes of Vatican II constitute substantial or merely accidental changes. Now, first you must understand the difference between a substantial and an accidental change. A substantial change is is a change which affects the very substance, that is, the very essence of a thing. Thus, if I were to burn a piece of paper I would subject the paper to a substantial change so that it is no longer what it was. When a person dies, he undergoes a substantial change. The body in the coffin is no longer the person. He has undergone a substantial change. He is dead. 
On the other hand, an accidental change is one that merely affects color or taste. For example, ice cream can come in different flavors. The, the difference between the two flavors is merely accidental. It is substantially ice cream, both flavors, or two colors of the same model car. There is an accidental difference. And thus, if a, an accidental change were to be inserted into the church's doctrine or discipline or into its liturgy, this would be something that would not affect the substance of it. And so even doctrines can be expressed in different ways and have been expressed in different ways, but the substance always remaining the same. And so worship, for example, the worship of the Greek uh, uniates, that is the Greeks who are united to Rome, is accidentally different from the Roman worship, but it is substantially the same. And so this is an important point of departure because we could not object to purely accidental changes, that is, which did not affect the substance of our religion. We could not object in a serious way. We could legitimately dislike certain accidental changes, but we could not object to them from the point of view of resisting them. On the other hand, if there is a substantial change in the religion, then it is our duty to resist it. And therefore, it is very important that one understand that there is a substantial change with the changes of Vatican II and that we are not merely resisting because we don't like them personally. The three main categories of religion in general are its doctrine, its discipline, and its worship. These conform to the three functions of Christ, which are to teach, to rule, and to sanctify priest, prophet, and king. And so, whether it should be the Catholic religion or any other religion, its three essential functions are its doctrine, including its moral doctrine, its worship, and its discipline. So the question is there, the question is, is there substantial change in any of these categories? And if there is, in any one of these three, then there is substantial change in the Catholic religion. Now, there is a substantial change in doctrine if there is a contradiction of previous doctrine or if there is a suppression of a previously taught doctrine. There is a substantial change in worship if either a different form of worship than that of the sacrifice of the Mass is used. For example, if the Protestant form of worship, which is a communion service, is substituted for the Catholic sacrifice of the Mass, that would be a substantial change in worship. The other way that you could have a substantial change would be if the rites and the ceremonies surrounding the Mass convey a non-Catholic idea. The rites and the ceremonies of the Mass speak a message. They speak a message not only in words, but even more clearly in gesture and in symbolism. And thus, for example, the many genuflections that the priest performs during the Mass is a sign of and a message of the real presence of Christ. And thus, the suppression of genuflection would at least make one wonder why there is such a change in the Mass if there is not a change in the doctrine itself of the Mass. And there would be a substantial change in discipline if the discipline no longer reflects the truth of the faith upon which the discipline is based. For example, it is a discipline to kneel for Holy Communion. Now that discipline is based on a doctrine, and that doctrine is the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. If that discipline is changed, it is changed for a reason. 
The reason could be a good one, perhaps that people are no longer able to kneel. That would be, say, like an old person. So you see from time to time old people not kneeling. Or it could be changed for a bad reason, and that is lack of belief in the real presence. And so a substantial change in discipline would be one that is based upon a change in faith. Now, we assert that there is a substantial change of the Catholic religion in the changes of Vatican II. There is a substantial change in doctrine, which is primarily and fundamentally this, that whereas before Vatican II, the Catholic Church taught that it was the one true church outside of which there is no salvation, the Vatican II religion teaches that the Catholic Church is not the one true Church of Christ, but only a church in which the Church of Christ subsists, and that other religions are also a means of salvation. That is the central dogmatic change that Vatican II brought about. And the other things, the change in discipline, the change in liturgy, all of that flows from that central, dogmatic, and substantial change. There is a substantial change in worship in as much as the New Missal contains a heretical definition of the Mass, defining it to be essentially a Protestant communion service. And also, in as much as the gestures and the prayers of the new Mass and of the new sacraments in general have been designed so as to deny certain Catholic doctrines which are unpopular with Protestants and to affirm, on the other hand, certain errors and heresies which are appealing to Protestants. And this is what you instinctively sense in the new Mass and what bothers you about the new Mass is that it is stripped of many Catholic doctrines, particularly the Catholic doctrine of the priesthood and the Catholic doctrine of the real presence of, the, of, of Christ in the Holy Eucharist and the Catholic doctrine of the reenactment of Calvary as the essence of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It is stripped of those things and furthermore what you find appalling in the New Mass is the fact that Protestant doctrines are present, such as congregational worship, where it is the congregation that carries on the essential worship by hymn singing and other, what they call active participation, and the priest, like the Protestant minister, merely presides over it. Other false doctrines concerning justification and universal salvation and so forth are also contained in the new liturgy. This is what you instinctively find repulsive about it, but which perhaps you have not explicitated in your mind. And that is why over the next number of months I will talk about these things. What I am giving you here is merely a preview, an outline of what will be said over the next number of months. There is also a substantial change in discipline in the Vatican to religion in as much as this new religion officially sanctions ecumenism and ecumenical practices to the extent that actions of taking part in non-Catholic worship are today extolled. Whereas previously they were considered to be mortal sins against the virtue of religion, against the first commandment of God. And this, therefore, is no mere accidental change of discipline. I'll give you an example of an accidental change of discipline. And that is when Pius XII dispensed the people in Europe during the war of the Lenten fast. Now, there was a good reason to do it, and that was because there was starvation in places like Italy and other countries in Europe and a great deal of personal hardship. Now, he did not change the doctrine of fasting. He did not do away with fasting because he changed the gospel as if fasting was no longer necessary. He said because of the 
straits in which human beings are found in Europe, they are not obliged to fast. That is an accidental change in discipline. But where something is considered to be against the supreme law of God given on Sinai, in fire upon the stone, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. When a discipline of avoiding the contact with non-Catholic services and avoiding ecumenical services, when that is changed, when those disciplines are changed, you have a substantial change in discipline. And where something was a mortal sin before as against the first commandment of God and now is extolled as a virtue, you have a change in discipline. And we see this in the actions of the head of the the new non-Catholic Vatican II religion, Karol Wojtyla, who has made it his business to carry on as much ecumenical activity as possible, where he has participated in snake worship and he has participated in receiving the, uh, the dung anointing on his head by Hindus and, and has uh, drunken uh, potions uh, in the West, in the, rather in the uh, Polynesian countries, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, where he has participated in nearly every type of false worship. He recently praised the building of the mosque in Rome and uh, said that he was so sorry that he couldn't go himself. He sent representatives and, and said that this is a wonderful thing that the Muslims now have a place to pray in Rome. And I was recently reading in the Osservatory Romano that he was lamenting the trouble in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And he said the reason for all of the strife in the world is that there is not enough spirit of Assisi. Now, in case you don't know what the spirit of Assisi is, he's referring to that 1986 meeting in which every religion on the face of the earth was invited to perform their false worship in Catholic churches. And the highlight of it was when a golden Buddha was placed on top of the tabernacle in the place of the crucifix and a Buddhist priest singing in weird chant and and incense carrying on a service worshipped this idol, carried on a worship service of the idol in a church in Assisi. And then there was also an American Indian who conducted worship of the Great Thumb. This is what is going to solve the world's problems. The spirit of Assisi, it is going to bring peace to Bosnia-Herzegovina. That, that Buddhas should be placed on tabernacles and that the Great Thumb should be worshipped. Now this is known as syncretism. This idea of putting together all religions. It is very old. It's a very old error. It is known as syncretism. And it is more than a heresy. It is an apostasy. That, it is, that is, it's, an, it's a complete abandonment of the Catholic religion. It's not merely a partial change of it. And Pope Pius XI said it. He said it in 1928. This is from Mortalium Animos, which is the encyclical condemning ecumenism from 1928. He says, For since they, meaning those who favor the ecumenical movement, hold it for certain that men destitute of all religious sense are very rarely to be found, they seem to have founded on that belief a hope that the nations, although they differ among themselves in certain religious matters, will, without much difficulty, come to agree as brethren in professing certain doctrines which form, as it were, a common basis of the spiritual life. For which reason, conventions, meetings, and addresses are frequently arranged by these persons at which a large number of listeners are present and at which all, without distinction, are invited to join in the discussion, both infidels of every kind 
and Christians, even those who have unhappily fallen away from Christ or who with obstinacy and pertinacity deny his divine nature and mission. Certainly such attempts can no wise be approved by Catholics, founded as they are on that false opinion which considers all religions to be more or less good and praiseworthy, since they are all in different ways manifest and signify that sense which is inborn in us all and by which we are led to God and to the obedient acknowledgement of his rule. Not only are those who hold this opinion in error and deceived, but also in distorting the idea of true religion they reject it and little by little turn aside to naturalism and atheism, as it is called, from which it clearly follows that one who supports those who hold these theories and attempt to realize them is altogether abandoning the divinely revealed religion. So make no mistake, the new religion that is proposed to us by Vatican II is not merely a heresy, as if that is better, were not bad enough, but it is an apostasy, it is an abandonment of the religion revealed by God altogether. Now the duty of Roman Catholics in the face of the perception of the substantial change of their religion is to resist it, to avoid it, and to denounce it. This resistance, this avoidance and denunciation of Vatican II and of the subsequent changes constitute the soul of what is known as the traditional movement in the world. Everywhere where you find Catholics, there you also find a resistance, an avoidance, and a denunciation of Vatican II. And although, yes, you do have a lot of divergence and a lot of disagreement among those who engage in this traditional movement, you nevertheless have a single string of solid truth in it all, and that is that the Vatican II religion is a substantial change of Roman Catholicism. And that is a witness that must be born against this new religion by all Roman Catholics. Hence, those who engage in the resistance, the avoidance, and the denunciation of Vatican II must clearly understand how and why Vatican II and the subsequent reforms have contradicted Catholic doctrine, Catholic worship, and Catholic discipline. And this, over the next number of months, I will explain to you, and I will also give you, which I think you will find interesting, a history of this great scheme to do this to the church. This scheme to insert this new religion, a humanitarian and dogmaless religion, has been in the minds of the enemies of the church for 200 years, and they have said it and it is documented. And with this knowledge, I, will, I hope that you will strengthen your resolve and your perseverance in the resistance of this new and false apostasy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today we will do our second sermon on, the, on Vatican II, and it is entitled The Fundamental theological error of Vatican II. Every building rests on a foundation. And if we consider the edifice of Vatican II's heresy to be this idea that the Catholic Church is not absolutely identified with the Church of Christ, but that the Church of Christ is some great spiritual church which subsists in this church and that church. It subsists in the Roman Catholic Church. It subsists in the Church of England. It subsists in the Greek Orthodox Church. That, as I said last week, is the, the great heresy of Vatican II, that it has denied the fact that the Roman Catholic Church is the one true Church of Christ, is exclusively the Church of Christ, 
and is exclusively the mystical body of Christ. And this it did in Lumen Gentium, which is the document on the church. But if that's the edifice, that edifice must rest on a foundation, and the foundation of that error is what I wish to speak about today. So the underlying error of Vatican II's heresy concerning the church is concerning the very nature of God and his relationship to men. Now, first we will speak about the teaching of the church. One of the good effects of heresy, by accident, is that it causes the church to meditate upon her own doctrine and to expound it with greater clarity and greater detail. So, first let's look at the teaching of the church concerning these things. The church teaches concerning God that he is infinite and perfect in all ways and that he belongs to a completely different order, which is the supernatural order, the uncreated order. It is different from our own. Ours is in the created order, the natural order. And there, th these are two different worlds. God is completely independent. He is uncreated. He is ordered to himself alone. He exists from all eternity and will exist for all eternity. We, and even the most perfect angel that he created, right down to the smallest pebble, all belong to a different order, and that is the created order, the natural order. And so we speak of nature, as opposed to grace. Grace is a participation in the life of God. Nature is nature. It is different from this life of God. The church, furthermore, teaches that creatures of the natural order cannot in any way attain to a participation in the supernatural order, which is God's life, unless God should raise them to that level by sanctifying grace. Just as you cannot fly unless you have wings. So we cannot attain to the supernatural life of God unless God give us the means. And that is grace. Man was created in the state of sanctifying grace, but lost it through his own fault, and therefore was cut off from God, separated him not only because God is in the supernatural order and we in the natural, but also separated even furthermore by sin. God, in his infinite mercy, however, sent his only begotten Son to redeem us, that is, to merit the forgiveness of our sins upon the cross, so as to remove the obstacle of our participation in God's life. Once this obstacle is removed, we may, by the following of Christ and adherence to his commandments, by belonging to his church and using the sacraments of the church, we may be restored to the supernatural order that is restored to the life of sanctifying grace in this life and heaven in the next. This participation in Christ happens through the sacrament of baptism whereby sin is removed and we are incorporated into his church. For Christ is unapproachable except through the means that he has set down. And that means is the Catholic Church and solely the Catholic Church. For just as there is one Christ, there is one Church. There is one door to Christ. There is one drawbridge into the castle. And that is the Church and we must be brought into the church in order to attain Christ, to attain the supernatural order. And we must use the sacraments of the church, particularly the Holy Eucharist. It also requires that we obey God and his church in all things and avail ourselves of the sacrament of penance when we fail. Now that is the Catholic teaching in a nutshell. And from it you can see that it 
preserves the distinction of the two orders and it preserves the Catholic Church as the one true church, the one door to Christ, the one means of salvation. Now, let us look at the modernist teaching or the, the modernist fundamental error right at the bottom of this edifice of modernism. First of all, there is the suppression of all distinction of the natural order and the supernatural order. For the reason they say that we cannot know these things. They deny all possibility to man of knowing something beyond what he experiences. They are phenomenologists, which is simply a fancy word for somebody who says that nothing is real except what you perceive and experience. This is what is known as the philosophy of existentialism. These are all big, fancy words, but it all rests on that simple sentence that I just gave you. Nothing is real except what you perceive and experience. And so you see from that principle that all truth becomes relative for what one person sees and experiences and feels is different from what another person sees, experiences and feels. So truth becomes a relative thing. Objectivity becomes absurd in such a case. So the what they would say, this very abstract and scholastic distinction between the supernatural order and the natural order, we deny. Then they say, God is in all men. He is in all creation. And there is a legitimate way to take that, and that is that, yes, God is everywhere. He is in a rock. He is in a dog. But he is not there in his supernatural life. He is there as the author of nature. He is there as the creator. He is present to every single thing that exists, maintaining it in existence and moving it when it moves, helping it by a pre-motion to move. Without that, all creation would cease to exist or cease to move. And so there is still an, an infinite distance between God and the creature, even when he is present to every creature and in every creature. He transcends all of that. He is not part of that creature. He does not form part of the substance of that creature because he is present to it. But the modernists say God is in all men in this way that God vivifies all of creation. He gives life to all of creation. He is there in a supernatural way, that is, with his supernatural life. Now, there's an interesting footnote to this. In the film Ben-Hur, which I saw when it first came out, in 1960, I was 10 years old. I did not notice the error in it at that time. But when I saw it later on as an adult, I noticed that there was an interesting thing said in it. And the two Roman soldiers were talking about Christ. And the one who had been in Jerusalem was explaining it to the one that had just been assigned to Jerusalem. And so the question was, what does this man teach? And the answer was, he teaches that God is in all men. The next time you see that film, watch that. He teaches that God is in all men. And I said to myself, where in the gospel of Christ can you find that statement? Where in sacred scripture or tradition is that statement found that God is in all men? Christ never said those words. And yet they were assigned to him in 1959, right when John XXIII was the Pope and calling the council. An interesting point. The modernists say he reveals himself to all men interiorly and in varying ways so that all men feel and experience the presence of God in them. That sounds very nice, but it happens to be completely false. God reveals himself to people whom he chooses in the Old Testament to Moses, to the prophets. And they, in turn, take this revelation and, under divine influence, communicate it to men, either by speaking or by writing. He does not reveal himself to everyone. Revelation is an objective thing that comes from 
the prophets in the Old Testament and Moses in the Old Testament and in the New Testament from our Lord Jesus Christ himself who communicated it to the apostles and who either taught the doctrine and handed it down or wrote it down. That's where revelation comes from. You don't discover God within yourself. God does not reveal himself to you within yourself. Yes, he may move a sinner by actual grace. But he does not reveal himself. He does not tell you his nature. Everyone in the modernist system then has a religious experience. They experience God. But because men differ by location and above all by culture, the religious experience is subject to and influenced by the culture of each man. So the Buddhist has a different religious experience from the snake worshiper in Africa, from the Greek Orthodox in Greece, from the Roman Catholic in Rome. But it's all based on the same spirit of God moving everyone to a religious experience. Because there is no such thing as objective truth, but only this experience truth, <clears throat> which I told you about, then every religious experience is true. It's true for you, for you are experiencing God in your own way. Now, all of this comes under the title in St. Pius X's encyclical, Pashendi, comes under the title of what is known as imminence. So if you want to learn more about modernism, read that section. It's a little bit abstract and difficult, but the, the main point is that it puts God in a supernatural way in all men and even in all things. And it, that doctrine has a devastating effect. And these are the effects. The first is that there is a confusion of the natural order and the supernatural order. Modernism is placing a supernatural presence and experience of God in every man. So that the borders between the natural order and the supernatural order are erased. Now, this terrible error has in turn two errors that flow from it. The first is that man becomes God. When you erase those borders, the first thing is that man becomes God. If you put the divine in man, a divine presence which every man is endowed with regardless of original sin and actual sin, regardless of an elevation by God to the state of sanctifying grace, but in every man, it means that human beings can attain by their nature God's life on their own power. This doctrine elevates a man to the level of a little God and makes humanity as a whole nothing else than God himself. Now this preaching of the, of the deity of man, the deification of man is something not new. Friedrich Nietzsche said it as explicitly as possible in the 19th century. Man is God. Humanity is God. And the, the 20th century has run on this principle. The Freemasons, for already 200 or more years, since 1736, have preached the same doctrine that man is God. Man sits at the top of everything. And this is also the spirit and the doctrine of liberals who simply have the whole spirit of Freemasonry. The moral effect of this doctrine is that man is no longer ordered to God. He's no longer aimed at God as his end, but is ordered to himself. Man as man. This is humanism, man ordered only to himself. Thus the way is open to the justification of nearly everything as long as it contributes to the convenience of man. We see therefore abortion, suicide, birth control, divorce and remarriage, sexual promiscuity and other forms of immorality approved by modern society. Why? The, and the reasoning in all cases is because these things pertain to the convenience of man. 
And when you set as the ultimate principle man, then that all makes sense. But when God is the ultimate principle, then the law of God must come down and obliterate all of these things. Man cannot, for example, kill himself because he belongs to God. It, God is the author of his life and the author of his death. And therefore he cannot check out of life the way he would check out of a hotel. The same with birth control. God is the author of life in the womb. It is God who will decide whether that baby shall, shall be conceived, whether that baby shall come to term. That pertains to God and all of the other sexual morality. Because in this system, mankind as a whole is God, the great moral concerns are not these things that I just mentioned. Rather, those are virtues. The great moral concerns are these, the environment, the ozone layer, human rights, the distribution of wealth to third world nations, the avoidance of war at any cost and the building up of a world republic, a one world government, the saving of animals, global thinking. These are the great moral concerns. So much so that if you throw something out that shouldn't be thrown out in, the, in a particular garbage pail, or if you make money and there's, there's people in Africa that don't have as much as you do, then you are made to feel guilty. You have in some way disturbed the moral order and people who promote the environment or seek to save whales or insects or, or bacteria that live in, in dirt. These are the great heroes. I know it sounds absurd, but these are the great heroes of society. These are the moralists. Because they are concerned with the great moral issues of humanity. You see what, what we have come to. And if you should kill a rat, shame on you, because you have in some way disturbed the environment. And people get arrested for that today. The liturgical effect is a man-centered liturgy. Since God is in all men, he is discovered, the modernists say, by dialogue. You don't discover God by going in prayer to him in silence, by mortifying yourself, by going into religious life, by finding a monastery. That is not the way you find God. You find God by dialogue. Thus the priest faces the people and dialogues with them. You have the handshake of peace and now in this diocese you have holding hands at the Our Father to show solidarity. In short, the profane becomes the sacred. What is natural becomes supernatural. All human effort and activity takes on a divine quality. And thus high school students bring up their basketballs and their tennis shoes at the offertory. It, it really filters down into absurdities because their basketball playing takes on a certain noble and divine quality. Whereas in the true religion, God demanded the best he demanded as a symbol of our own sacrifice the most pure lamb in the Old Testament, the lamb without blemish, the best of the flock, to take that lamb and sacrifice it as a symbol of ourselves, that we offer the best in place of ourselves because God in his infinite majesty and authority could demand the sacrifice of ourselves. He could just as he demanded the sacrifice of Isaac and he accepted the sacrifice of his son. Don't forget that what has redeemed us is a human sacrifice and that is the sacrifice of his only begotten son in his, the, the blood that, that he shed. That is a human sacrifice and because our blessed Lord in his sacred humanity was attached to the second person of the blessed trinity, 
it is also a divine sacrifice and primarily and above all a divine sacrifice. But he did ask for, even demand and take the sacrifice of his son. He could ask the same of us but because he does not, in his mercy, he asks us to take what is the best and offer it to him. We see also in the New Liturgy the use of guitars and profane music in general, jazz, love songs from movies, even dirty movies, rock music, and polkas. Even polkas take on a certain divine quality. Everything that is merely human is now sacred. Everything is dragged into the sanctuary. And on the other side of the coin, which is the second effect of the error of breaking down the borders of the natural and supernatural, the other side of the coin is that God becomes man. I just talked about man becoming God. Now, God becomes man. The error of modernism dethrones Almighty God and makes him one of us. There is no supernatural order to aspire to. This is it. There is no elevation of man. He is at his peak. This error shows itself in the, other, the utter breakdown of dogma and orthodoxy. There is no set of doctrines to adhere to but rather you believe whatever you think is best. In morals, it leads to a morality of human convenience, which I spoke about, <clears throat> and of purely natural ends. Purely natural ends. It's not as if man aspires to, <coughs> to supernatural ends, but merely natural ends. The purpose of human existence is not the attainment of God in the beatific vision, but rather the experiencing of God in our everyday human experiences. <clears throat> Don't forget, God is mankind. And the good of mankind is what should be attained. The moral worth of people is not judged by their obedience to the commandments, but rather on the basis of purely natural virtues. He or she was a nice person. And that's the way the Novus Ordo funeral goes, that the, the, the person has played the, the songs that they love the most. It doesn't matter where they came from, whether they're Bing Crosby songs or whatever. They wheel the person in and then the priest gets up and talks about how nice the person was. Purely natural considerations, purely natural virtues, if even they are virtues in certain cases. Liturgically, this principle leads to a complete flattening of the liturgy that we see in the utter stripping of the churches, the low ceilings, the bleak meeting hall look that they take on. We see it in the abandonment of beauty and excellence in liturgical goods and in the decoration of their churches. They use things that are so cheap on the altar today in Novus Ordo churches that you would not use them in your home. They say mass, so to speak, on tables that you would be ashamed to have in your own home. They use clay to drink out of with regard to the chalice. You would not use clay in your own house. You would not use the ugly things that they put out in your own house. And cheap why? Because God is one of us. We don't have to bring out the best for him. He's one of us. In the, in the Catholic Church, the best is given to God. The best, why? Because we are giving ourselves in that. When we come up with the best, when we come up with the most expensive thing that we can afford, it is a representation of ourselves. We have sacrificed for it. And you go and look at the old churches that your parents and grandparents built. They sacrificed for those churches. They gave up the things of this world in order that those churches look beautiful. Because they were giving of themselves to God. They were placing themselves on the altar of God and sacrificing themselves. And that's why they look so nice. And if you look at the churches of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and any other time, but now you go by these churches today and they look no better than bus stations or banks. Indeed, banks generally look better. 
And we see this spirit in the Novus Ordo priests who strive to be merely on the same level as the people, like the Bishop of Saginaw who wants to be known as Ken, and we oblige him with that name, and other priests like the Father Bob routine, or just Bob, call me Bob, and we see that they don't wear distinctive clothing, but they wear sport jackets or some other usually abominable clothing, uh, where you can tell in most cases that they are priests by the way they are dressed, even though they are attempting not to be priests. And in church, uh, they have a spirit of familiarity and lightness, which is not conducive to the gospel. And so they will make comments from the altar and uh, conduct themselves in a very sloppy manner upon the altar as well as the altar boys. All of the, the respect due to God is gone because God is one of us. He's one of the guys, so to speak. And this is from the, the fundamental error of modernism. In the next sermon, we will examine how this fundamental error leads to ecumenism, which is another of the foundations of Vatican II. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed, but more importantly, found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit. We will be on air to continue with the second part of this series one week from this evening at the same time, and will continue to allow Bishop Sanborn to eloquently and forcefully explain to us the great break from Catholicism that was and is the Second Vatican Council. For more information on the work of Bishop Sanborn and of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, you may write to him at the following address. The Most Reverend Donald J. Sanborn, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Donations to the seminary are always welcome, needed, and appreciated. And we at Restoration Radio would ask that if you find this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small or large it may be. You may do so by going to truerestoration.org and clicking the PayPal Donate button at the bottom of the page. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at True Restoration, or you can contact us directly via email at truerestoration at gmail.com. Thank you, and keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.